And we're live. Good evening, everybody. It's great to have you all here. We're live today with Brad Kammer. It's great to have you here, Brad. So happy to be here. So it often comes up on this channel, the topic of trauma. Yeah. And I believe it's not, it's not possible to even fully understand the Israel-Palestine conflict without understanding trauma. So Brad, being a trauma expert, it's a great pleasure to have you here. Before we get started, just quick shout out to our Patreon visionary members. We have Trivium Energy PTYLTD. We have SRG Cannabis, Max Marine, Geffen Posner, Adam Becker, Maya, Kimberly, our one and only champion member, Raja, and our one and only legendary member, Speedy Weedy. To all those who support us, whether through Patreon, PayPal, or any other form of support, I, from the bottom of my heart, the support is greatly appreciative. Appreciated, and it really helps us do more of what we love, and that's connecting people, uh, reconciling between people in conflict. Um, I want to do one quick thing. I, I want to show you all something. A friend of mine, you know, we, we, we spoke about people who support the show, and it's not only in the form of um, m- monetary support. We have volunteers that help with the other things. And an awesome individual by the name of Mike Mintz made us a new intro, so I'm going to play it real quick. Check this out. Isn't that fancy? Brad, what do you think of that? Love it. (laughs) Love it. Yep. Shout out to Mike Mintz for that one. Um, You can find Mike's contact information in the description. Um, Brad, so yeah, for those, me me and Brad connected. um, I I, want to say he's also a supporter of the show in one way or another. He asked to not get credit, so I'm kind of going against what he asked me, but I do want to shout him out. Brad does support the show. We connected a few months ago. Um, just had a conversation. I was very interested in what he does, and we finally have him here for a for a session. So uh, maybe just take a minute to introduce yourself, Brad. What who you are and what what you do. Well, first of all, I just want to say that uh, you know the the cannabis supporters of your show make me feel very at home because I live in Northern California, which is kind of the central of uh, the cannabis industry in this mm. United, United States, um, which I. I I guess I was somewhat aware of when I moved there, but, uh, but yeah, are you I'm familiar with the companies that, that sponsor no. silver patron patrons are from California, somewhere in California. I'm not sure where it's a huge industry. There's yeah, I'm not familiar right. with them. Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm happy to see that they're, they're supporting, supporting you. And yeah, yeah. and I'm, I'm really happy to support you too. And, um, you know, I, I, I want to first, before I introduce myself, just talk real briefly about just how, how touched I am about the work you're doing. And uh, just for, for listeners to know how I actually learned about you, Adar, is I was doing kind of this deep dive into my own lineage. You know, one of the areas of interest for me is intergenerational trauma. And I came across a, a talk that you were giving, and I actually wrote it down here. Uh, and it might actually make it into my book, by the way. Um, mm-hmm. And Adar's quote was, the path to peace is paved through the humanization of the other. And it just struck me about, and, and of course, then I started to watch all your shows and you're doing exactly that. You're focusing on or doing the best you can to, to support the humanization of the other. And I had to reach out to you because it feels so in alignment to the work that I do, except for the focus is less on the other and more about the self. And uh, we'll, t- we'll talk more about that because I, I see three levels of humanization that have to happen in connection. But 
but yeah, so I, I live in Northern California. Um, I've been a trauma therapist for over 20 years now. I actually started my career as a humanitarian aid uh, activist worker in uh, working with Burmese refugees. I worked in on the Thailand-Burma border. And I was introduced to collective trauma and also collective healing. And I had kind of a really major life experience where I developed, I didn't know that at the time, but I developed secondary trauma. I had all kinds of reactions that were happening for me. But at the same time, I was just super impressed and, and, and amazed and inspired by the community that I was working with, the Burmese community. And it just got me really interested in, in wanting to learn more about trauma healing. And so I came back to the United States and I, that started my personal journey of healing my own trauma and also my uh, academic and clinical journey of becoming a therapist that focuses on trauma. Um, so I can tell more as we go, but uh, that's kind of the yeah, background. Yeah, great. Um, great background. I actually didn't know. I, I didn't know about your past. Um, you mentioned intergenerational trauma and secondary trauma. And I know that your expertise is in complex trauma. Can you just kind of make sense out of these different forms of trauma, how they interact, how they're different? Yes. Yeah. And I just want to start by saying that a lot of people who are kind of trauma experts or trauma specialists, uh, which I, I, by the way, don't call myself a trauma expert, although, you know, I was looking at the screen and be like, whoa, okay, I'll, <laughs> I'll, have, I'll have to get comfortable with this. But yeah, but um, yeah. people that are kind of, you know, experts in the field of trauma, they often think that we're using trauma too broadly. And I actually have a very different opinion of it. I think we're using it actually too narrowly. Um, and, and the way you know, that I unpack trauma is that it's really anything that disrupts our, our ability to, to, to cope and to, to manage life experience. And, and there's different forms of it. And we really break it down into two forms. One is what we've, what we've known about trauma, which is PTSD. Uh, often we refer to that as shock trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder. So that's like being in combat or having a car accident, something like that, that that's like a, a, often a one-time event that's so sudden and overwhelming that we really don't recover from it. Um, and that changes the course of our life. And over the last, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, there's been a push in another direction to add this understanding of complex trauma. And so there is a new diagnosis. It's CPTSD, Complex Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder. And it hasn't officially gone into recognition yet. The World Health Organization will supposed, is supposed to next year put it into um, mm. official status. And complex trauma is a real big, broad category that covers anything from like attachment trauma, which is trauma with parents, you know, in, in the early childhood, uh, developmental trauma, which is any experiences that, that disrupt the development of a, of a self, of the child's developing self. Um, cultural trauma, uh, you, you know, you talk a lot about that on, on your programs about cultural trauma in the United States. There's lots of racial trauma, of course. Um, and, and then also intergenerational trauma, which, you know, for, um, the Jews and pa Palestinians, Israelis and Palestinians, uh, and then, you know, Jewish people specifically, um, thousands of years of intergenerational trauma that impacts, not only the way that parents then parent the next generation, but also starts to change the genetic sequence. Right. And, and there's some really amazing research out there about that. Um, and then last piece, just to answer your question, secondary trauma tends to be about helpers, helping professionals that are working with people. They used to call it vicarious trauma. 
So it's like if you're working as a medic, you know, uh, in combat situations, you're not actually maybe being shot at, but you're mm. witnessing witnessing people that are having all these experiences and that impacts you. For example, right now in the United States, a lot of uh, nurses and doctors are experiencing secondary trauma because of what's happening with COVID in the hospitals. Right. Okay. So let me try to make sense out of this in just a few sentences. Yeah. So. Shock trauma would be a one-time event like a car accident, and that has the ability to then give you PTSD or in most instances will give you PTSD. If you're in a situation where you're repeatedly being traumatized, maybe a child that is abused by a family member repeatedly, they're going to develop complex trauma, which would be CPTSD. Yes. And... That is going to people with PTSD or CPTSD are not only is it going to impact how they parent, but it's also going to change the genetic makeup of their um, children and even grandchildren. I think they show it's multi-generational. Oh, yes. And secondary trauma could, I guess, be both complex or shock. Yeah. Okay. Is yeah. That, it, is that a good summation? Did a great. Did a great job. Cool. Yeah, it, it gets it gets super complex because children growing up have shock traumas that become in the fabric of this context of complex trauma, and and then even adults, you know, so uh, an adult that's being in, uh, trafficked, for example, or uh, prisoner of war, things like this. These are these are complex traumatic situations where the sense of self is being broken down and disrupted extreme levels of helplessness and hopelessness and despair. Um, and there's also shock trauma experiences that are happening. So it's when we start working with clients, it, it gets really complex very quickly because these things are overlapping. But, but I think just for helping people understand the two categories is a really useful way of helping to differentiate. Because what, just one more piece to this is that really shock trauma triggers a brain process that really has more to do with life and death, immediate survival. I, I call it mortal threat. It's like our mortal threat is challenged. There's a mortal threat to our life. And we, we, we will do anything in that moment to survive. Um, we can go to some very extreme places to survive those experiences. But with complex trauma, it's not so much about a mortal threat. We're not an immediate life threat, although we might think we are. But it's actually more of an impact of just our sense of self, our security in ourself and the security in the world. Hmm. So what what are some like distinct ways that that uh, shock trauma and complex trauma, like distinct ways in which they affect people who have these forms of trauma? So, you know, if we look at the the category of like the diagnosis of PTSD, there's there's three main kind of categories of it. it has to do with hypervigilance, which is like the the fear that uh, the next shoe is going to drop, like you're always on guard, you're always mm -hmm. kind of agitated because there might be something that will happen. There's avoidance patterns that happen. So if someone has an accident at a certain intersection, a certain road, they're going to avoid that road. Um, I, I had this client many years ago, lived in a small town, luckily, but she was turning at a, at a red light le going left. She got slammed by a car. And for seven years, seven years, she learned how to navigate around her town, never turning left. Wow. Yeah. Just think about that for a second. That's pretty complex. Yeah. Um, luckily she lived in a small town and it's then complex, but it's shock trauma that instance. 
Yeah, that's right. that's yeah, that's yeah. right. That's that's important. Okay. That's yeah, shock mm-hmm. trauma. And um, okay, so we got hypervigilance, avoidance, and then there's a hyper arousal that happens um, where your body has so much energy that it it leads to things like flashbacks, um, intrusive images, rage responses, and you know that's why people feel so overwhelmed when they have after a trauma. And they generally cycle between two states. They cycle between these really high energy states of panic, rage, anxiety, restlessness, and then they fall into the other side of it, which is like a depression, a shutting down, a dissociation, a numbing. So, so that's shock trauma. Uh, complex trauma is more complex, but it really, there's three kind of main categories with complex trauma. It has to do with the disruption of a sense of self. Like they call it like, um, it's like low self-esteem. Like you, mm. you, you don't feel worthwhile. You don't feel good in yourself. Um, so that's one category. The other category has to do with disrupted uh, capacity to regulate yourself. They call it affect regulation, which means that you're very reactive emotionally or you're, you have a lot of kind of um, disorganization in your body, for example. People can, it can lead to having medical syndromes or conditions if you have complex trauma. And then the last category is the disruption of healthy relationships. People start struggling in relationships. Okay. It's, 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 it's sorry, hold on. My phone is binging. Would it, would it be fair to assume that the majority of Israelis and Palestinians have some form of trauma either? I imagine some have complex, some have shocks, a fair amount have both. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're asking a very biased person, but I, I, I would say, I would say every everyone does. I, every, every, every person, every I, person. Well, if we keep it just to Israel Palestine, yes, every person. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a fundamental believer. I wrote my thesis about this, but that civilization itself creates trauma. That that's that's a that's a whole other conversation to have. But in terms of Israel Palestine. Yes, um, I would say that that the whole system is built on top of trauma. It's um, it makes me sad because it's almost like it's a it's a, just a, a cycle that that keeps reinforcing itself because. People with trauma, it seems, are going to be less equipped to solve conflicts, right? So it's like a conflict is going to make a population traumatized, and then that population is going to be less equipped to make their situation better. Is that is that like a, a fair concern to have? Like, is it fair to say that that's what we're seeing here, that the, the people on the land are perhaps less empathetic towards the other side, um, more hateful towards the other side. And a lot of this is being driven by trauma that is a result of the conflict. So the conflict is reinforced by the people being more, let's call them conflict oriented. Definitely. Definitely. You, you mentioned two things that I'm glad you brought up because I wanted to talk about them too. It's so important. The first one is, is and, and this is happening in the United States too, and I'm sure maybe around the world, but I call it a failure of empathy that like we're living in a time where there's a failure of empathy and empathy has to do with the ability to really feel into another person's experience. Like as a parent, 
it's critical uh, to develop secure, to support secure attachment for a child, that if a child is, you know, fussy and crying, that the parents are, are feeling into what the child needs before the child's able to communicate. So it's like a fundamental building block of secure relationships is to have empathy for another person. And we're living in a time just with, with a complete failure of empathy. And that relates to the second thing you brought up, which is, is in psychology, they use this term resiliency. And I actually, we use the term in my work uh, called uh, psychobiological capacity. It's, 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 a, it's an overly complicated word for resiliency. But basically, the idea is that we have a certain capacity to be able to, ex to uh, be present to experiences. And the more trauma we've had, the more unprocessed trauma we've had, it's like the, the, let's see if you can see my hands, but like the lower our range for dealing with life experience becomes. And mm -hmm. so, so we just develop less capacity, less resiliency. So we're going to be triggered much more easily. We're going to have less empathy, less capacity to hold complexity, hold nuance, to have quietness inside of ourselves, to be present with people, to be curious. All of those things start going out the window when we don't have that capacity. I, I, I need to remind myself of that when I'm uh, calling out the, the toxic people in the chat that they're probably traumatized people and that I should be a little, maybe a, a little more patient with them sometimes. <laughs> I, yeah, I kind of find it fun the way that you banter with them actually, but um, yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, I always say there's an entertainment value to that's, you know, the, it's not only it's entertaining for people to watch. It's fun for me to do. So I, uh, you know, um, I engage in it, but I sometimes after the fact think to myself, like, you know, like, yeah, they're coming in and being haters, but they're probably struggling in life, you know? So it's like, and this doesn't mean like we need to put up with their shit, but um, maybe try to um, approach it in a way that will help them uh, heal heal their trauma, if that's even possible through like an online dialogue. I guess we'll get into um, curing trauma. I, I, I do have one. We, we spoke about empathy. I, I recall reading somewhere that uh, people who have PTSD, um, it actually changes like the structure of the brain and uh, it, the, the area of the brain in which we feel empathy. Is that, did I re recall that correctly? Yeah. I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a specialist in neuroscience, but you know, as far as what I have read over the years is that the prefrontal area of our brain, which is like right here, be, you know, behind our forehead, it's the part of the brain that they think has a lot to do with empathy and there's Daniel Siegel's a famous uh, psychologist who talks about flipping your lid. And the idea is that like, this is your brain here. And that when you have unresolved trauma, you literally like flip your lid, which means that your prefrontal area is no longer connected to the lower parts of your brain. And that's what we call the primal brain, you know, the animal brain, people are like right. really, really reactive. And it's like, they're not able to be mindful, practice mindfulness or have any kind of space between an, a stimulus in it in a response you know they immediately just have to react and that's all a lot because this prefrontal area goes offline when there's particularly when there's developmental trauma when a child grows up uh with this lack of um self-regulation the lack of their ability to be organized inside themselves then they come into adolescence and adulthood often 
pretty disorganized. And, uh, and then, yeah, you see things like the lack of empathy, lack of humility, lack of openness. And then of course it can make them more prone to buying into ideology or fundamentalist beliefs that are, Mm, that that then fuel the conflict, you know, like this is, this is, this is part of that whole complexity about how do we, you know, talking about humanization, how do we actually meet each other as humans, as opposed to all the layers of identifications that we have about who we are and how we're supposed to live. Right. And, you know, when it comes to identification, I, it's something I've realized as of late, but it seems like in many conflicts, a lot of our identity comes in opposition to another group. So without our enemy, our identity would vastly change. Um, and this seems very much true in, uh, well, I would say that the Palestinian er- narrative specifically, how like Israel being j- just, you know, being this, um, the, this um, expanding nation, right, as they see it to them is, is something it's a, it's a focal part of their identity in many ways, like Israel's existence. Um. How do we how do we begin like how good is the science to actually cure trauma? Is there a lot we can do? Are we just starting to learn what can be done? I I, I really want to dive into this question, but I want to go back to something you just said because it's sure, such, a, sure. such an important piece of if, if you look at um uh like uh grassroots uprisings, rebel uprising, like you know, Cuba is the best example. Uh, che Guevara and Fidel Castro, they were revolutionaries. They were popular. They were for the people. They had a vision for bringing a, um, a new society that would break down the totalitarian regime that was, was suppressing their country. And you see this over and over in history, that when those people, if they're, if they're successful in getting power, they end up because they don't have the dynamic to push against, like you were saying anymore, they don't have the identity to, to, you know, to mm-hmm. define themselves against, they end up often internalizing the exact oppression that they were um, advocating against. And, you know, that question has always kind of, you know, been in me for many years as I've looked at these different kind of, um, movements and why does that happen and then you you know you start seeing it just with humans too you know humans that grow up in in environments where there's abuse or there's trauma oftentimes they internalize that and they they end up often acting that out in sometimes very similar ways to the ways that they experienced it themselves um or they end up if if it if it's difficult for them to act it out they will end up acting in in self-sabotage in various ways, like using substances, um, you know, dr- drug abuse, alcohol abuse, um, you know, all the different forms of self-sabotage that it's another way of kind of acting in this, this aggression that didn't get to resolve itself. And so there's a lot to talk about. You brought up grief before, and, and I'm now bringing up protest and aggression. Those two mm-hmm. emotions are the emotions that we, when we're, my, my focus is in complex trauma. And so when we're working with complex trauma, those are the two emotions we mainly focus on, the ways that grief doesn't get resolved and processed, and and what happens, what are the implications of that, 
and then the anger and the which is actually a form of protest originally that doesn't get to process doesn't get to complete and what implications that has fascinating I get. I don't want to get into this, but I guess. So, so this is essentially a concern. It's it's an interesting dynamic you explain when people are fighting for their freedom. For example, oftentimes the people fighting hardest for their freedom are those who are most traumatized, and then if they gain a position of power, they're in no way equipped to wield that power responsibly. Yeah. Which I guess the case could be made. That's one of the reasons, you know, why we uh, Israelis are are not empathetic towards Palestinians because we've been brutalized so much. It's like it's hard for us to see to see the other side. They 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 remind us they they Palestinians trigger in us that that fear that panic response to uh, to potentially being murdered. Yeah. So to them, it's, you know, we, we need to we need to fear them. We need to defend ourselves against them. It's not just in here. It's it's in here. Right. It's very much in our body. It's totally. growing up. But I get it. Yeah. And, and this will I start leading it. leading us into the question you were asking about how do we cure or work with trauma? I, I'm a somatic oriented therapist, which means I'm a body or focused therapist. I have been for over 20 years now. And and from from our perspective, you can't heal trauma without accessing the body because that's where it lives. Um, narratives are very malleable. Like narratives can change. Stories can change. Memories can change. Right. But, the, but the body is actually what's driving the narratives, driving the stories, driving the behaviors. And so we really have to find a way. It's kind of like going in and rewiring our house. You know, we have to rewire the, the system so that the behaviors, the stories, the impulses, those change when we're able to change the, the internal system. So is that two distinct approaches to trauma, one being somatic and the other being on a, I don't know what the opposite of somatic would be, but you deal with body. Is there another approach to taking when, when addressing trauma that's not somatic? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the main approach, at least in the United States, and I think this is pretty much across Europe as well, is um, what, what they call cognitive behavioral therapy. And so it generally focuses more on working with on the level of thoughts and behaviors, which is important. It's not that that's not important. Um, but, you know, again, to get underneath what's driving those behaviors and those thoughts, we really have to go into working with the body and the body is not welcomed in the, in Western world. Um, the body is something that we're afraid of. It causes pain. Uh, people don't often want to be in their bodies or if they do, they only want to experience pleasure and they have a difficult time right. holding distress. So, and, and that is a form of, that is one of the main symptoms of traumas. People leave their body. It's called dissociation. How do we how do we differentiate between what is body and what is mind? Because I feel like they're interconnected, right? They and they seem to be hard, if not impossible, to separate in many instances. Yeah, I mean the the way that we usually talk about it is there's like there's what we call embodied cognition, and then there's like disembodied or or dissociated cognition. So there's like thoughts that that are 
very much often strategies of actually intellectualizing or leaving our body, living in the realm of thoughts, but not really being able to feel the impact of it emotionally or, or physically. And, and that's, that's often thoughts that, that aren't that organizing for people. Um, in fact, they often can reinforce old patterns. Whereas embodied cognition are thoughts that are really working kind of in, in concert, in organization with our emotions and with our thoughts. And I mean, we've all had these experiences where, you know, we, we have thoughts that are um, not only maybe disconnected, but sometimes they actually drive our anxiety or drive our fear. Like when we're worrying about the future, for example, you know, those might be thoughts that are not actually supporting us to be kind of in the present and, and, and feel more balanced and, and secure in ourselves. Hmm. Would it, just to make sure I, I understand, would it be like the difference between, like, I, I think anxiety is one thing that's very clearly felt in the body way more than the brain. Like anxiety is like a, a stomach thing, like chest and stomach, not, not brain. But I think that there is a form of anxiety that could perhaps be in the brain. It could be like the conscious awareness that you're anxious about something. You could feel them distinctly, one being in your mind, the other in your body. Would that be like a fair distinction with also how trauma can manifest itself sometimes in the realm of thought, others in the realm of feeling? I think so. I mean, you know, it gets it gets a little bit like unique for each person because we'd have to understand each person has kind of a different experience about it. But that can definitely happen where, you know, it can be just really cut off from people's, ex you know, felt experience or it can be something that that is really related to someone's felt experience. I, I mean, I think the reality is that people, at least in the West, are very disembodied. Um, we, we see even people that are athletes or that do yoga and stuff. A lot of people are using their body, but using their body is different than being in your body. And those are two different things. Sexuality is another good example. People can use their body to find pleasure, but that's different than actually being in their body to have deeper levels of connection with another person through sex. And those two distinctions are really important, actually. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Now, so can, can we talk about okay. solutions? I think this is everyone's on the edge of their seat. They're like, okay, but how do we, how do we fix it? How do we fix it? <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, I think you're doing one aspect of it. I, I I'm being really serious about this. I think one, I appreciate that. yeah, yeah. I mean, one aspect of it is what you're doing about bringing people together to hold space for uh, people to be in relationship with one another with conflict, with complexity, with different narratives. Um, but okay, let me back up though. Cause you know, there's really like three levels of this. There's connection to self. There's connection from self to others, which is, I think the level that you're really working on. And I'm really working on that first level connection to self. And then there's like this third level that is supposed to be the realm of religion, I think religion fails at this level largely, but which is connection to something large or connection to spirit, connection to God, whatever, whatever that might be. And from my perspective, and I think this is pretty, this is pretty traditional perspective is that they are um, in some ways hierarchical in the sense that if you're not able to 
be connected to yourself, it's going to be very difficult to be connected to others. And if you have a difficult time being connected to yourself while you're connected to others, it's going to be difficult to connect to something larger than ourselves and in our relationships. And so here's where it comes to my solution. I do not believe that you can legislate um, people to care about each other. I do not believe that politics is going to be the level of the healing that needs to happen in Israel, Palestine, or any of these places. I believe that those things happen out of humanization of the self. We humanize others when we start to feel more human in ourselves. And of course, those two things have to happen simultaneously. So the work you're doing and the work I'm doing, that's why I'm so glad that we're creating this, you know, this, this relationship, because I think there's a way that, you know, these kind of works can really reinforce each other in a really important way. And, and I think that's really where it starts. I think it starts from us really healing trauma within ourselves. There's this quote I love, um, healing the universe is an inside job. Mm. And I like that. yeah, the more we don't hate ourselves, the less we project that onto other people. Yeah, there's uh, another quote that's just going to, I'm going to build off that. I believe it's Lao Tzu. Um, the best gift you could give mankind is that of your own self-transformation. I believe that's mm. the quote. So Love it's a it. similar similar vibe. Adar, I'm, I'm just curious how this lands for you when I, when I talk about kind of, you know, you and I, like you're working on the level of self in relationship to others. I'm working on the relationship to self. Like how does that land for you? Does that resonate for how you're yeah yeah I, it seems like again i'm a, like I, I know you accept if i oversimplify things because i just try to make it as accessible yeah. as possible yeah. but it, it seems like the distinction would be here it's uh it's people uh human people seeing their enemies humanized and that could have a very profound effect and the work you're doing is would be more similar to like a, a therapy session where you're working with an individual on themselves. What other, I, I'm really interested in, so we have, I believe like 12, 13 million people from the river to the sea that need some kind of trauma um, <laughs> assistance, right? We got a lot of work. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, one, one, uh, one way is to get like a few hundred thousand more uh, brads out there uh, working with Israelis and Palestinians or a few hundred thousand more channels like this uh, that are right. So that that's part of the process. Are there other things that people can do? Um, maybe I know there's like shock therapy. I know psychedelics have been, are been being tested. Are you, or are you just very much in your domain? So it's lesser air of expertise, the other, the other therapies. Oh, they're, they're, yeah, they're definitely less my expertise, but I'm a huge, I, I'm not a fan of shock therapy, but I am a, I am, you know, I'm a huge advocate for, and we have people in our community that are working on plant medicine and psychedelics with trauma, um, mindfulness. I, I think you've talked about, you've experienced mindfulness practices yourself. And um, I, I've been a yoga practitioner for many years. I'm a huge fan of yoga um, and how that can help for healing trauma. There's things like biofeedback and neurofeedback, which are um, 
you know, m- machines that you can hook up to. They're not changing your brain, but they're helping you learn how to better regulate your brain. And I've been trained in, you know, a certain level of training in, in that. Um, there's a whole lot of different somatic work out there that you can do in large group settings. Um, it's not the work that I do, but there's, there is work out there that people can be in hundreds of, you know, rooms of hundred, hundreds of people and do somatic exercises that are starting to access or work with their trauma. So there, there's a lot of really great stuff out there. A lot of it is, is not necessarily supported academically. Um, you know, there in the United States, we have this whole thing about evidence-based uh, therapies and psychedelics, for example, are not evidence-based therapies. A lot of somatic approach, most somatic approaches are not evidence-based therapies, which then blocks our capacity to get, make it more accessible to people, which is, which is challenging and sad. Um, and there are people that are working on making that more accessible, but that's just kind of, that, I mean, that's specific maybe to the United States, but there's, there's a lot of great things that, um, that we can learn also a lot of these things are borrowed for, uh, from traditional cultures and um, the flip side of intergenerational trauma is intergenerational wisdom and as we mm. reassociate as we reconnect to ourselves we have access and one of the things i've been so inspired by your channel honestly it makes me feel a little old actually but um is you know watching the this new generation of folks i mean just the last uh, debate that you had i think you had two college age students on here and just w- seeing all these young folks reconnect to the the spiritual power of their faith or their their religion um their traditions and that's really exciting to see because i think that is a that that's going to be a deeper source a deeper well than the identity you know than the identity of being muslim the identity of being jewish the identity of being christian there's a much deeper well of the the mystical traditions that have been lost you know particularly in our faith because of jews being you know so a, a, a healthy sense of identity is one of the ways that can help people through trauma because trauma has the ability to take away your sense of self, as you mentioned. Yeah. And actually mm-hmm. I meant to say this before. I thought this might be interesting for you. Like, cause you were talking about uh, the way that like Israelis might start to relate to Palestinians. And, and this is simple. This is a simplified understanding, but there's kind of, when we've had complex trauma, our self, our sense of self kind of goes in two directions and we, ca- we call them, just for the sake of simplicity, a pride-based sense of self and a shame-based sense of self. So th- let's start with the shame. The shame sense of self is that we internalize the failure from the environment and we make it personal about ourselves. So, for example, for Jews, we don't have the right to exist. We, we don't belong anywhere. I'm weak. I'm inferior. Uh, I'm dirty, you know, all these things we've in, we've internalized. And that is so toxic, that shame, that we often then go to the other side of it, which is the pride-based sense of self, which is the, the, the prototypical Israeli that, you know, that, that the West looks at Israel as like these, you know, the IDF and, you know, that, that's, right. the, that's the image of the oppressed become the oppressor. And, this happens in 
all of us that have complex trauma, we have different strategies that are both shame-based and pride-based. And we really need to work with both of those. We need to work with both, you know, they used to call the pride-based our false ego self, like the way that we show up in our false sense of self. And, and then underneath that is this way we really feel shameful about ourselves, bad about ourselves. So I don't so, remember where I went off on this tangent here, but. <laughs> well, yeah. So could both those forms of identity be, be negative? Like you're saying both, both those have a negative component to them? Yeah. Yeah. They, they both are not a true expression of our, of our authenticity. They're, they're, a, they're a trauma reaction is what they are. Our, okay. Here, here's a nice simple way to say it. The identity that we take ourselves to be is often just our trauma. It's our adaptations to trauma. Our adaptations to trauma. Fascinating. So how do we how do we identify what a healthy identity looks like? Yeah, that that's the that's the question. And I think that's where psychology starts to blend into spirituality. Because what happens when we don't show up in the world through all these adaptations to our trauma? It's actually really frightening for people. It's frightening to start letting go of our identity. And we then kind of go back and cling even tighter sometimes to these identities, even, even though they're not necessarily serving us because it feels so scary to, to open up to a new possibility. And, and sometimes it does have implications. It, it, you know, it might challenge our relationships. It might challenge our connection to our communities or our cultures. Because to be really authentic you know, means that we might not go along with what is, you know, what is accepted in the relationships that we're involved with. I do want to take some, uh, we don't, we don't have too much time. So I do want to take some audience questions. So uh, chat, if anybody has a question now, ask. Um I'm not going to address any of the nasty stuff I see today. This is too, <laughs> too this is too peaceful, peaceful of a session. Brad, you have me in like a, a nice uh, calm zone. I'm not going to break out of it. While we get some questions, um, I did. I, some, I did yeah. think. It, I did think it was interesting that before we even started today, I went on this morning and on the YouTube channel. It had, you know, just the picture of like, you know, in two hours, we're going to be starting. And someone, yeah, yeah. Had, someone had already done a thumbs down. <laughs> and I, I was just yeah. thinking, I was thinking to myself, yeah. like, okay, who, who, like, what goes into someone that doesn't even know what we're going to be talking about to already reject what we're going to be talking about? It could just be somebody who's written me or the channel off completely. Yeah. Um, one of the more unfortunate things about growing is that the amount of people who don't like you also grows. Yeah. Um, you know, it's as much as I feel like I'm resilient to the haters, I'd be lying to say it didn't have any effect on me. I mean, no one wants to be hated on. So there are, are there, we have a growing community of supporters. We have an awesome, vibrant community. Uh, one that I truly love. And then there's a group of haters that also are growing. And I guess there's nothing, nothing to do about it. It, it, it is what it is. Um, 
And I and I would just like kind of no those people probably won't listen to me or you here, but I, I do have a suggestion, which is, you know, when people are are kind of going after people in that certain way, I, I think a lot of people have a strong intention of why they're doing it. They 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 believe that they're just in how they're doing it. And intention is only one side of the coin. The other side is is about impact. And I think people don't spend enough time that goes back to our conversation about empathy, about intention and impact are, are just the other two sides of the same coin. And it's, it's one thing to have intention about how we're trying to make change. It's another thing to actually see the impact of that. And I think we, we have a responsibility to see our impact on other people. Hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I wonder if I, and I would assume a lot of the hate we get is, is just trauma, trauma based hate. Right. Like what, what is it about? I, this might not relate to trauma, but I think there's something very triggering about humanizing somebody's enemy. Right. So the path to peace is paved through the humanization of the other. But there's going to be a resistance to humanizing one's enemy, especially when that individual's identity is dependent on the enemy existing in the first place. So it seems like there's almost a, to some people have a visceral reaction to the concept of of humanizing the other side, which is fascinating and unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know if this will be useful. This is a little, gets a little bit complicated, but like w with attachment trauma, trauma where a child has disruption with their family, with their parents, one of the things that happens is that we need our parents, obviously for survival, we need love for survival. And yet they become the source of the threat and the pain. And it puts ch children into an impossible bind. And as we get into adulthood, the healing become, comes when we're able to hold both sides, when we're both able to hold the love that we have for our parents and the hatred or, or the at least the, uh, the, the pain that they've caused us. And that is really difficult for humans to do. Um, there's a psychological term for that. It's called splitting. We, we Humans are really good at splitting. And again, I think it's something that you're bringing. I don't know how conscious you are of it or not, but you're bringing this, this ability to really sit with this complexity, which in itself is healing. It's healing the, the, the fragmentation, the splitting that happens with people when they're able to sit with other people that have very opposing views or different perspectives or from different cultures. There's there's actually a part of our brain called the amygdala that that is getting. That's um, our, our our reptile brain. It's part of the reptile brain, and, and yeah. if you if you read all the literature about it, everyone talks about it as as in the form of that's our like uh, our alarm system of our brain, like the threat response. Like you're saying something to me, my amygdala gets triggered, and I have to protect myself. But there's it's really important to understand that actually the amygdala gets activated around novelty, around difference, around mm. new situations. So yes, fear is one direction you can go in, but there's another direction. And I think that's exactly what I see you kind of creating this, this space for. You know? Interesting. Cool. Well, I mean, you've, you've helped me better understand not only the Israel-Palestine conflict, but my own role in it. So not only my own, but this channel as a whole. So I, I really appreciate that. Um, we do have some questions. 
I love love so it. Let's let's get to it. Um. So Jeff Hirsch, thanks for the question. Jeff is asking, uh, Yodar, is there any research about Holocaust survivor trauma and how it's passed down? Uh, yeah, the, the, probably the premier researcher in the world on intergenerational trauma and epigenetics, that's a term they call it, uh, is Rachel Yehuda. And she's an Israeli who lives in New York. Um, I think she works at NYU or I'm not sure exactly. And she, for 30 years, has been doing just incredible research on, she started on, on Holocaust, third generation Holocaust uh, survivors. She's done work on second generation 9-11 uh, survivors. Um, I think she, they're doing research now on pandemic. So um, it, yeah, if you, if you Google her, her, you'll find a lot of information about, um, yeah, this field of epigenetics, which is about how the gene structures change with intergenerational trauma. And she, because she has a close to her heart, the Holocaust, she does a lot of research on that. Mm, what, what's your name? Rachel Yehuda. Rachel Yehuda. I'll, I'll toss that in chat just so it's there if anybody wants to look her up. It, yeah, yeah it's super it's, chat. Thank, thank you, it, Scott Jackson, for the super chat, $5. Uh, Rabbi Nachman said that joy frees your mind, and when your mind is free, there is no limit to the possibilities that can come to us. Peace and love. I, I, I agree with that, Scott Jackson. Thank you. That's a great $5 spent there. I love Yeah, that. exactly. Um, okay. Let's see. So I did see a question about psychedelics. We touched on it briefly, but uh, the, the question is from Jordan saying, do psychedelics have potential to help trauma victims? I mean, psychedelics have been used for millennia in traditional cultures. So I think it would be pretty arrogant of us to say that it doesn't. Um, I, I think there's a lot of traditional wisdom that's gotten lost because communities and in, in societies have been extinguished tragically. Um, and I think there, you know, in America, there's, there's, a, there's controversy around appropriation and I, I don't you know, I think there can be a cultural appropriation, but I also think there's a way that cultures are meant to be shared. And I think there's wisdom that if it can heal the planet, I would imagine that most wise people would want that to be shared freely. Um, so I think there definitely can be a role for psychedelics. And um, I, I think it's also particular to the person. I think there's some people that it's it's too much for. Um, yeah. And actually, I, I say the same with meditation, too. You know, years ago, my the organization I worked at, we got brought into um, certain meditation centers that were doing like 30-day medita silent meditation retreats because it was too much for people to sit in their own internal stuff. Uh, because what happens wow. when, you, when you quiet yourself is a lot of material starts emerging. And some people didn't have the capacity to tolerate that and had reactions. So. Hmm. Yes. Yeah, so just to build on, um, on, uh, psychedelics, cause I, I do feel like psychedelics have impacted me positively. Uh, so that of course this, this is anecdotal, but it's an anecdote that many, that millions of people share. Uh, but let's, let's put my own personal experience aside. There's, uh, John Hopkins and maps maps is the multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. They're both doing clinical studies now on, psychedelics and how they can uh, help with things like PTSD. 
Uh, and not just plants, they're, they're finding also ketamine and uh, MDMA are showing uh, positive results. So if anybody's interested in this topic, look up MAPS. Uh, we also did a standing up. I interviewed a friend of mine, Natalie Ginsberg, who works at MAPS. Um, she even did a few sessions with Israelis and Palestinians taking psychedelics and working through trauma. So it's even been uh, tried and tested here. So uh, look into that. You can either find the interview on the channel or look up maps or what John Hopkins is doing. It's, it's very interesting. Um, Hisani Ethihad goes, yeah, Sulcha is an inspiration for thought provoking perspectives on both that. I appreciate that. Hisani. Let's see what else we got. Uh, if you also, if you see any questions you want to pull up, you know, feel free. Uh, I, I must have not had them show, which is good because I, I didn't get pulled into the. <laughs> um, let's see. Yeah, so um, Momo is asking, Yo, there are any research on Palestinian Trump? So we asked this about Jews. So I wonder if there's. So Rachel Yehuda, who you mentioned, she's not just. Is she only studying it in Jews or like, is this just a broader. Like the question, can Momo find information about Palestinian trauma also in Rachel's work? Or is there like another source he could potentially look at? It's a good place to start. I, I know she's not just focused on Jews. Um, I, I don't know if Palestinians are part of her research or not, but uh, I, I'm sure if you do some Googling, you'll find information. I mean, Israel-Palestine is one of the central places that trauma <laughs> specialists yeah. are in, interested in. Um, I see an interesting one. Um, guarantee if you give an Israeli and Palestinian 60 milligrams of Oxycontin and two bong hits each, they won't fight. Look, I need to tell you something. I, Oxycontin is not a drug I would recommend people try. Like that, opiates are so addicting. I know you're probably kidding, but just, just so no one takes that comment too seriously. Opiates are so addicting. Um they end up killing them. Like I've, I've lost friends. They started with Oxycontin. It's just the pill, right? The doctor prescribes it and then you get addicted. Um, and your, your tolerance increases super fast. So like Oxycontin, it's like 30 milligram pills. You start by taking one, you feel great. After a month, you need seven to feel good. That's hundreds of dollars a day. So what people do when they run out of money, they just move to heroin because it's stronger and cheaper. And that is, you know, Next thing you know, you're you overdose because uh, you know heroin or it could be cut with fentanyl or, or whatnot. So I, I actually have lost friends to opiate addiction. Uh, so d definitely don't take opiates unless you need them, like you have a major surgery. Two bong hits, I could support that. You know, if you want, like Israel's and Palestinians smoking together, yeah, that that'd be uh, yeah, I could see that working. Well, you know, I think a lot about the opiate, you know, because we have serious opiate issues in the United States and, you know, the, the areas of the brain that register pain are the same for emotional pain and physical pain. Mm. And I just think so much about how when people, you know, a lot of people, they, they get addicted to pain medications uh, in good faith, like they had a back injury or they, had, you know, they were in a car accident and they start taking it. And it starts to, it's, it's like when people that are alcoholics say that the first time they drank alcohol, they just felt for the first time in their life quiet inside or relaxed inside. And I think opiates kind of work in the same way. It actually starts to quiet some of the emotional pain 
that hasn't been able to be addressed. I think that's partly why it's people get so addicted to it. I mean, there's also, of course, the physical dependence, but is that like a, a dopamine um, connected to dopamine? Yeah, I don't know enough about all the different neurotransmitters, mm, but I, okay. I, I, I'm sure dopamine is involved. Yeah. Because I feel like I'm a dopamine addict, like when it comes to screen and like, you know, I, 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 I used to party with hard drugs and stuff. I don't even drink alcohol anymore, just weed and occasional psychedelics because I feel like it, it enhances, you know, but even though I've been able to put um, hard drugs behind me, I still feel like something in my mind is constantly telling me like, pick up my phone and and just scroll, right? Like that, that, that drive to do that. Is that just a, I guess it's just a symptom of, of being alive in today's world more than anything. But, um, I wonder if that's also trauma, trauma based. Like I don't, I don't have identifiable trauma, but I imagine I do by being raised by uh, a Holocaust survivor. Um, and a dad who's in the military and then my own experience losing friends, right? Like you could probably conclude, but I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm rambling on. I'm just wondering if my, if my uh, screen addiction <laughs> is somehow connected to uh, my childhood. It's a good, I'm trying, I'm trying to get over it. Good area of exploration. I mean, when I used to, I, I worked for years with uh, kids mostly that were in foster care and for many of them, their phone was their only attachment figure. And if they lost their phone, they would go into reactions like that were really intense uh, because they didn't have any security externally uh, or internally. And so their phone became kind of the one place that they were getting regulated. Whatever those chemicals are, I don't know exactly. But so I, I think you're on to something, you know, um, and, and I think, you know, our society is. There's also, you know, the, the, the hit of social media that it's like we're getting connection in a world that is more and more fragmented. Um, and particularly over the last year and a half, where in a lot of places we've been more, our bubbles have gotten really small. There's something about our finding connection through screen and through social media that I think serves a purpose too. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. What do you think? Hold on. I just realized I, 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 I'm, I said something incorrectly that I want to correct. I was not raised by a Holocaust survivor. I was raised by, by a child of a Holocaust survivor yeah. on one side. And then my father is a child of, of people who like my grandma, my grandma and grandpa on my dad's side were in Israel years prior to the Holocaust. And, um, you know, were either fought in wars or like my, my grandma was, in the siege of Jerusalem. So both my grand grandmothers almost starved at young ages. Um, I'm sure that affected my parents somehow. Yeah. Uh, they've done research on famines. Uh, famines also change genetic structure. Uh, they cause intergenerational trauma. They did this whole study. I think it was in, it was called the Dutch famine when the Nazis uh, basically um were starving whole cities in Holland in the early 1940s and uh, children were, you know, starving and families were starving. And then they, they were able to um, track those families years later and the grandchildren of those families. And again, same, same intergenerational trauma patterns that got passed down. Yeah. 
That, that, that's what I said before at the beginning when we started talking about how I, I'm a proponent for broadening this understanding of trauma, because I think like clinically psychologists always want to like, they, they want to narrow it because if you make it too broad, it, they think it loses its clinical value. You know, like people, everyone says they're depressed, you know, like, oh, I woke up, I'm depressed. Right, right. You know, it's like, well, then you're losing the clinical understanding of when someone's really suffering and it's really impacting different areas of their life. And I, people say that same thing about trauma, but I actually think we, part of trauma is minimizing reality. And so I think it's a trauma response to minimize how much trauma impacts all of us. It, it, and there's another yeah, piece. Yeah, I, I understand both sides. Like you're saying we all have it, so we let's be honest about it. And the other side of the argument is saying, but if everybody has it, then it takes away from those who really have like a severe yeah. case of it. Yeah. So we need to recognize it as like a spectrum. Yeah. So it's like a, yeah. You're, you're about to say something? Oh, yeah. There was another piece that it brings in power dynamics, too, because who, who gets to determine, like, the, the, you know, people that are subjugating other people are creating trauma for other people. And then if, they're the, if they are the same people that get to dictate who gets to be traumatized and not, it gets into some more really tricky territory. Um, so that, that's a whole nother kind of topic of discussion about how to, you know, deconstruct some of these systems that have been, there's inherent trauma built into some of them. And I, I think Western medicine and Western psychology are, are, you know, flawed in many ways in that regard. Yeah. Agreed. Very much agreed with that. Um, we have a question from near. Thank you for the question near. Is there, he goes, a question for Brad, is there any way to treat trauma on a collective level instead of an individual level? How do we scale the treatment? It's mm-hmm. a great question. I mean, there, there are groups that are focused on that, that bring people together, um, focusing on, um, you know, restorative justice and, and being able to speak truth to each other. Um, you know, people that have been perpetrators being in environments where they get to hear from the victims and, you know, like there, there's all kinds of things that happen. I know in, in South Africa after uh, apartheid, they did a lot of that kind of work um, to help, which again, in America, part of the problem is we, we've never really, we've not really, we've never moved past the original sin of America, which is slavery. And I think in South Africa, they really did their best to try to not just like, okay, we're going to move on and create new structures and systems. But like I said, from the very beginning, you can't just legislate people to care about each other. Right. You know, that, 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 that level of trauma healing that happens more collectively has to happen. And Mm. so, so there are organizations and groups that are doing it. Um, And right now I'm spacing on giving you any resources, but maybe I can think more about it. Sure. And, and, you know, based off, um, based off what you said about identity, it almost seems like if we could create a situation where Israelis and Palestinians have some kind of a shared identity, then that is something that can help us collectively heal together a, a new identity that we can all agree on. Um, how you do that is another question, but would you say that is an example of something that could be done that would really, you know, help us heal through trauma? 
so like, give me more understanding what you mean by that. What does that look like? So, you know, people talk about a, a binational state, right? The, the reason, I mean, there's many reasons why I don't think that would work, but one of the reasons is because I don't think both people are going to support the same, they might live in the same country, but they're not going to have, Palestinians aren't going to take pride in being Israeli, at least not, it's going to take many generations if, if somebody has that idea in mind. Um, Israelis are not going to take pride in being Palestinian in terms of national identity. Um, there's all, there's not, in, in fact, there's like a, a repulse, like we're repulsed by the thought of the other national identity. So if there's a new national identity or again, this doesn't need to be in a one state paradigm, even if you have two states that are part of a confederation and that confederation is called something and people on both sides have an identification with that mm. broader name, and they take pride in being part of that. That seems like something that builds like a healthy sense of identity, one that is based on connecting with the other side. Um, is it, so d does that seem like something that can like be a collective, collectively work? <laughs> it sounds like a beautiful image. Um... I mean, the reality of it seems complicated, but the the image, I mean, I think humanity, if you look at biology, it, it, it thrives in diversity. It thrives when diversity comes together in streams. So it doesn't like single crop don't work that well, actually, for our, our you know, our environment. And so, uh, you know, I think about with humans, too, it's like, you know, having people really separated I don't think it bodes well for the future of our humanity. I think there needs to be a way that we find common ground and can come together. I, I, one thing I haven't named yet that I, you mentioned it early in terms of like the, a certain sadness or grief, but I think we talk a lot about this with clinicians that are dealing with trauma, but one really important thing that we have to learn how to embrace, which is really probably the most difficult thing for humans to embrace is helplessness. And I, I get this feeling a lot when I'm listening to your programs and even when they're very positive and there's a lot of like nice connection, just the level of uh, difficulty that you all are exploring, there's so much helplessness. And I think that's actually a starting point. I think it, being able to embrace and embody the helplessness is a really important starting point for us. Hmm. Because helplessness is destructive, generally well, speaking. It, it, it feels like that. It feels like a threat to us. You're saying we should learn to embrace it. I am. Because like as humans, we're so quick to wanting to jump into strategies of solutions or fixing, which again, that with, with shock trauma, going back to what we talked about, yeah, you have to make immediate decisions to assure your survival. When you're talking about complex relationships and complex systems that aren't an immediate threat, sometimes they are, you know, when you're getting shot at or what things, but, you know, oftentimes they're not, then, then we really have to be able to sit with the level of um, reality where we're sitting with so much unresolved pain and, and grief and rage 
And there is a certain helplessness that is a starting point, I think, for us to really um, feel into different possibilities that we might not see if we're just quickly jumping into to solution-based approaches. Interesting. So I feel like for me, it would be fairly easy to just embrace helplessness because I, I live a relatively good life. I, I feel like for a Palestinian, it would be a little bit more difficult, like that concept, right? Yeah. It's like for them, helplessness, I feel, is one of the most radicalizing forces that exists. It's the the idea that there's nothing that they can do to help their situation, right? Their backs are up against the wall. Uh, I'll never, I won't, I'll never forget this poll from a few years ago. I wonder if there's a more updated one, but it showed, I believe it was 9% of Palestinians and 20, only 9% of Palestinians and 21% of Israelis think that uh, uh the conflict will be solved in their lifetime. Yeah. You know, that's crazy levels of despair. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I want to just differentiate something that's important because the helplessness, there, there's a difference between states and behaviors. Like, you know, if I want to hurt someone, strangle someone, that's a feeling that I have internally, but I don't actually go and strangle someone. That's the behavior. And a lot of times we have states and behaviors linked up and with helplessness, I think it's important to differentiate between the two. I'm not at all advocating that people should be helpless in terms of their action. Um, I think people have to advocate for themselves as much as humanly possible. But I think if it's being driven from these unprocessed place of terror, grief, rage, then the behaviors are going to be shaped in that direction. Hmm. Interesting. Would would one way of embracing helplessness be the the concept of kind of like surrendering to destiny? Like there's very little. It's almost what what's the quote? I, I guess hold on. Somebody somebody shared it. It's it's the twelve step program. Uh, oh yeah, where, serenity prayer. Yeah. Exactly. Is the serenity prayer essentially here? God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Is that is that the concept of embracing helplessness? I think it, I think it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the most powerful things to just accept that there's very little in this world we have control over, and all those things we have we don't have control over. Just surrender. It's all good. It's going to happen. The question is, how do we deal with it? And that's and that is our choice. How we deal with it, not not the things happening around us. Yeah, and and again, I just want to differentiate because the surrender also can be a state or a behavior. And I I personally don't advocate people surrendering in the behavior of it. People who are living in these situations where they're being subjugated should be advocating for themselves and not surrendering to the, the circumstances, but emotionally and internally, there is a certain kind of acceptance that, that opens up new possibilities. And it's, it's, it's easy for me or you to talk about it. I know because we're in certain conditions, but you know, that's why we look at people like Nelson Mandela, who was imprisoned for 27 years. And he talks about finding internal freedom, despite 
all the external freedoms that were right. taken away from right. him, he was able to access a place that no matter what happened to him, he still had this sense of internal freedom that then allowed him to make different actions from that place. Right, right. I, I think there's a book also. I don't want to botch the concept, but I believe it's the story of a slave. I don't know if it was actually written by a slave, but but it was um, a slave who was writing how they feel more free than than their mm-hmm. owners. Um, they're they're out working the fields, but yet mentally they they feel like they're more free than they could ever be. I might be botching the story, but I I recall. I remember there being such a book. If somebody knows, if somebody knows the name of that book, maybe share it in, in chat. Our, our collective knowledge is way greater than uh, just one individual. That's for sure. Um, hold on, I'm seeing. Also, I guess this is this is something that I wonder wonder about. It seems like we need to find a balance between. There seems to be like two extremes in society. One is to not be aware of your emotions. Like that's a very like masculine concept to just like be strong, be tough, not complain. Uh, and then you're holding in all these things that are probably better if you were to express, express in the form of, uh, it could be either crying or sharing with a friend, seeking help. Um, there's a lot of suppression of these emotions, primarily amongst men, I would say. But I'm sure I'm sure it's, uh, you know, across the spectrum of genders. But I think there's another extreme that is becoming more popular that I think might be just as bad. And that is over identifying with your trauma or your oppression, because you, you want to be able to talk about your challenges in life and your emotions. But you don't want that to become a focal point of who you are, like your identity, your identity should not be. I am an oppressed person. I am traumatized. I am sick. I am this, you know, it's like that probably is going to make it a uh, uh, self-fulfilling prophecy, right? The more you identify with your trauma, the more it becomes a part of your reality. So do, do, do you agree with this concept? And like, do you see the importance of striking the balance between knowing how to talk about uh, what you're going through and being honest about how you feel without, overly identifying with that yeah i think i think you're speaking about a very important point that you know there is such an identification in the ways that you're describing and again that's what i was saying before it's like we start you know as we start to open up to new possibilities of how we can be we often get afraid on some level and so then we go back and identify even stronger with these with these old whatever that is um and i i look at that as another form of objectification and dehumanization that basically we're, we're so much more than these things, you know, like we're so much more than our religion, our race, our gender. Those are important qualities of, of right. who we are. But as soon as we start to reduce our complexity to I'm this color, I'm this gender, I'm this religion. Um, I think it starts to turn us into more of this reductionistic, um, mm-hmm. you know, it starts moving in the realm more of objectification and dehumanization and, and then, and then ability to have open dialogue and, and with ourselves or with other people right. starts to shut down. Right. Okay. So we're seeing both extremes, uh, manifest in, in society, both those 
um, approaches could in fact be triggered themselves by trauma and they're both reactions that reinforce the trauma and they certainly don't alleviate yeah exactly yeah there there is a perpetual cycle of trauma that builds on top of itself which is really difficult for people to to live under all those layers of trauma that begets trauma that begets more trauma right right is there something that you think that uh we could do here on Surcha to orient our conversations. It could, it could also be something I could do better as um, a host and as a moderator to orient it better to dealing with people's trauma. I love that question. Such a, yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I mean, maybe bringing that question, just that question into some of these conversations Mm. Um, like, like I watched that, you know, that controversial one you had recently with, uh, Norman Finkelstein. Is that his yeah, name? Yeah. And, um, he made this comment at one point, and I think you talked about it later about like, I'm like this cause my mother was like this mm-hmm. and see that, that. I found that to be a very powerful part of our conversation like that. I was kind of taken aback by how raw he was at that moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and see that that's an interesting place to explore with someone about like the way we internalize for better and for worse, what we grew up around right? and how we identify with that. Like he's what, 67 years old. It doesn't, he doesn't have to follow everything that his parents said, but there was, right. a, there was a way that he was pretty adamant about that. And there, there would be room for exploration about his relationship to that and what that means for him. And there's a lot to unpack in that statement. It felt very powerful. Um, yeah. It was also interesting to see that he seems reflective at, at, at his age. Like he acknowledged that he thinks he might have been wrong about more things than he was right about. And, you know, it was it was a different side. It was a different side of him than uh, I've seen in any I watched many interviews and lectures to prepare, and then I see a completely different side of him. So it was, and, it was an interesting experience. And, and Adar, maybe that was partly because of what you're already doing that maybe you're not even that aware of, that there's a way that you are fostering an environment where people you know, feel the conditions mm. are set up that they can go to that territory. In, in, in the United States, we have something called the trauma-informed movement. And the idea is that we're bringing this understanding of trauma into schools, hospitals, organizations. And so you, the question you asked me, you know, it's like I already the reason why I reached out to you is because I already felt like you were aligned with it in some ways. And, yeah, maybe there are more specific things that, you know, that you can do. But I actually think the way that you show up and the way that you create your community and the space for these conversations, whatever those ingredients are that you're doing, I think you're already doing a lot of good stuff in that regard. Great. Well, you know, I, I really appreciate that. Uh, but if you do see something down the line, and if you see an area where you think we could improve, let me know. You know, I'd, I'd definitely be happy to get that feedback. Um, let's see. Do we have any other questions before we wrap up? That's one of the hardest things to try to, like, keep an eye on, uh, on the chat while, while paying attention. Because obviously I'm, I'm prioritizing what, what you're saying, so we, we miss a lot of questions. 
Yeah. And we should start getting a community member to help out. Yeah, because there, there, it seems like there are some really valuable questions that get lost in all of the kind of back and forth. Yeah, exactly. Um, mm -hmm. um, yeah, the, okay. I actually really like this question, and then we'll, we'll, wrap, we'll wrap up. Agnostic asks, Rad, it seems Middle Eastern cultures are more resistant to social talk about trauma and therapy. Do you see this as an obstacle to, collect, to collective healing? Yeah, but actually, well, I actually think it's kind of the opposite. I actually think that Middle Eastern cultures are very used to open dialogue. It, it is true that the vulnerability is difficult. The vulnerability is very difficult. So therapy generally includes a certain level of vulnerability that is difficult for people to get to. Um, but I, I like, for example, psycho psychotherapy started with psychoanalysis, which was Sigmund Freud and and most of his original, they used to call it a Jew science originally, because most of the psycho, early psychoanalysts were Jews. And he brought Carl Jung into his circle because he wanted a non-Jew to help them get legitimacy, actually. And the, one of the reasons why Jews were so good at being psychotherapists is because it was so part of their tradition. It was so, they, they, there's something about the tradition. I think it's Middle Eastern, actually, that that we have an ability to face conflict and be in it and get dirty in it. And, you know, uh, Europeans, Christian Europeans, that, that wasn't their style. That was especially in the Victorian age. Um, so there was something about Jews being able to do that, that allowed them to kind of go deeper and develop psychotherapy. So I, I, I think it's the vulnerability piece. That's really tricky to, to be with someone in a vulnerable place. You have to be, feeling safe enough to do that. And so if you're sitting with your enemy, that's going to be very difficult to feel safe enough to, to share vulnerability. Understood. Do you, I, I get, I guess what, um, the, the, I, 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 I get, I understand where that question comes from because there is something in like the, What's, what's the word like the Middle Eastern men are, are it, you know, we talked about like the, the aspect of masculinity that says don't talk about emotions. So I think that's amplified in the Middle East. So it seems like that in, in itself could potentially be a roadblock because they're not willing. It's, it's seen as weak or feminine to talk about your struggles and your emotions, right? You, you, you hold it in and then it just manifests in all, all, sorts of other other ways which is bullshit um because real strength comes in being able to face vulnerability and weakness true true and That's i true. and I, I know what you're saying i mean that you know there's there's the, the warrior archetype is about you know this this ultra masculine this kind of all-powerful and you know those people often have a lot of distress internally and, and live very difficult lives right great um look th this was this was a pleasure um I'd, I'd love to have you back on again i think there's a lot a lot of ground to cover here um we could go deeper we could maybe bring somebody on who focuses on a different form of trauma um we'll bounce ideas around but i think i, I consider this the first of many sessions yeah do you have any 
And by the way, if anybody wants to get in touch with Brad, uh, Brad has a podcast where he talks about trauma. You could find this information in the description. Uh, his emails there as well. If you want to reach out to him, any, any final thoughts, final words, something you want to leave the audience with? Well, I, I have an answer. <laughs> One of another answer to your question you asked before about like, what can I do to make this more trauma informed? Mm. And I actually think you're already doing it, but it is something just to kind of continue to do is to continue your own self inquiry, your own self reflection, which I see you doing all the time, like in the way that you're showing humility that you don't know it all and you're not doing it all right. And see that in itself is already opening you to learning and that creates safety. So that is one of the ingredients I think probably people feel from Mm. you that as opposed to like you have some kind of rigid thing that you're going to try to kind of coerce them to either agree or disagree with you. And so I, I just think that that capacity, again, it goes back to that first level of connection to self. If, if the connection to self isn't actively being cultivated, it's going to be very difficult to hold space for other people. So I just, it's again, it's one of the reasons why I just felt drawn to what you're doing and to you specifically. Um, so as far as parting thoughts, I just feel really grateful of for being invited on and for connecting with you and what you're doing. And I, I've told you this before, but I, I like watch all your stuff. Um, it's been really helpful for me in my own healing journey because this is my own intergenerational trauma stuff is, is newer territory for me that I've been exploring recently. I've been very disconnected to my own lineage and my own, um, my own, you know, potential to have intergenerational wisdom. And, uh, so, you know, you're bringing on people that are actually very supportive for my own learning and healing. So I I really appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, that makes me, you know, very happy to hear it's, it's like hearing messages like that is, is helps motivate me to just continue this work because it's clear that it, it's having, um, you know, an impact. So, and I'm, and I'm happy you, you reached out cause look what it led to, you know? Um, so yeah. 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 I hope it was useful. And, you know, I try to make it as accessible as possible. This stuff is a little complicated, but we have videos and like, like Adar said, we have a podcast and, we, we do trainings for helping professionals. So if you're someone that's an educator, nurse, doctor, we do online trainings in this model called the Neuroeffective Relational Model. Um, working on a book now that's going to be written for hopefully the general public that's going to come out next year. So we're really trying to bring this understanding out into the world so people can use it directly and not, you know, not always have to go find a therapist to work with. So that's part of our, our mission. I, when the book comes out, we'll definitely do a uh, we'll do a little segment to to talk about that. Um, great. So, uh, chat. If, if you guys want to continue uh, after party in the lounge, we could do it. I probably won't join just because I've had a long day. Brad, if if you want to hop in the lounge and maybe you want to you want to pop in, say hi. Um, anyways, whoever wants to drop Discord in the chat, you join Discord on the left hand says side it says lounge click lounge and you'll be connected to the after party um you you know i I don't want to put you on the spot on joining or not but brad might join (laughs) go and find out (laughs) i might i might join yeah (laughs) um i don't know if you see but we're seeing in chat a lot of people are very appreciative of this conversation so thank you brad and uh chat audience thank you so much as always it's you know great having you 
As for next week, next Thursday, we're going to have Zach and Zach back on for their second debate. People love the first one, so they're, they're back for a second one. And um, I was actually put in touch with an activist from Afghanistan. So I am going to schedule with him. We'll probably speak to him either Sunday, Monday, maybe Tuesday. I'll let you know. You all will see. And with that, much love. Signing out, friends. Thanks, Adar.